Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. Thank you, Bree. Our youth program is uh, an amazing place to be. If you are in 6th grade up to 12th grade, uh, we encourage you to be a part of that. BJ has been with us. How many years, BJ? I don't even know where you are. There you are, seven years. And the typical stay of a youth pastor is about six months to a year, if that. And uh, BJ has been a trooper, and you've been here for a long time. So thank you. As we get into our series today, really quickly, let me just explain that uh, we are in a series entitled The Advent of Patience, and an advent is the beginning or the coming of something, so this is the beginning of patience, and I know God has been patient since the beginning of time, but when God took on human form and came into the world, uh, we have this embodiment of patience in human flesh that we know as Jesus Emmanuel, God with us. I want to talk a little bit today about the fulfillment of waiting. How many of you enjoy waiting? I think I asked this last week. Do you enjoy waiting? How many of you like long lines? Uh, You've been to a theme park, you've been to the store, especially these days uh, if you're shopping much. a lady last night, we were in Michael's, the cashier said, well, I asked her how, her how she was doing, has it been busy? Oh, yeah, it's been super busy. And she said, you know, people will come in here, if we're too busy, they'll go to TJ Maxx. She said after work um, the night before, she went over to TJ Maxx and she said the line was wrapped around the whole store. And she says, yeah, I'm, I'm not up for that. She walked in, looked around, walked right back out. She doesn't like waiting either. But the reality is nobody likes waiting unless you're waiting on the right things. And even in waiting on the right things, we don't like to wait, do we? Yay or nay? Okay, I'm just making sure you're here. Um, And the difficulty in our culture is we've been conditioned to not have to wait. We have fast food, we have microwaves, we have now these instant pots where you can cook something that's solidly frozen like a rock within 40 minutes or less. We, are, we have been conditioned by the achievements of technology within our culture to not have to wait. But have you heard the term, good things come to those who wait? Abraham and Sarah, how long did it take before God, when God promised them that they would uh, have a son and they would have descendants that outnumbered the stars in the sky? How many, how many years did it take before Sarah actually got pregnant? No, it took 25 years, but they were in their hundreds or right on the precipice of a hundred before. How, can you imagine, how many of you are close? I probably shouldn't even ask. Close to 100. Anyway, how many of you are 75 or older? Raise your hand. I can't see much of anything right now, but I, I, I can see a few hands. Now, imagine God coming to you and saying, I'm going to give you a son in your old age. How would you feel? How would you feel about that? 
You waited your whole life. You hadn't been able to have children up to that point. But God says, hey, I'm going to give you a child. You're like, uh, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. Is that what I heard over here? And God didn't give her a child when she was in her mid-70s. He waited 25 more years. Or how about Joseph? Joseph, the one who was sold into slavery, one of Jacob's 12 sons. What about Joseph? Sold into slavery by his own brothers. He left the region of Canaan, and these traders took him to Egypt. Egypt was not a safe place in those days. It was civilized, so to speak, but it still was not ruled by laws that we have in our land today. So what about, what about that? How long did he have to wait? I mean, he rose to power in his master's home. He became the head servant of the home. And then there was a false accusation that he messed around with his master's wife. He got thrown into prison. He's in prison probably for about a couple of years until he is able to interpret Pharaoh's dream because Pharaoh's wise men are not able to do that. All in all, he's in Egypt probably 15 to 20 years, give or take, depending on which scholar you read. If you were sold into slavery, would you be willing to wait 20 years before things went your way? <laughs> what about David? David uh, is the second king of Israel, but before he became king of Israel, there was another king, Saul. Saul was chosen and anointed by God through Samuel, and he was on the throne for many years. And he ended up making a mess of things and doing things that God hadn't desired of any king of his to do. And so God rejected him as king, though he didn't take him out of the position and had Samuel anoint another king while Saul was still living. David was that other king. How long did David wait before he ascended the throne? About 11 to 12 years. Hannah, we know in the Old Testament, the mother of Samuel was unable to have children. This seems like a common theme in Scripture, doesn't it? Women unable to have kids until God comes upon them, and in his perfect timing, they're able to have kids. And after praying and waiting and going through some tumult and persecution, she's able to bear a son. And as I talked last week in the passage of Isaiah chapter 9, how long did, after Isaiah's prophecies of a coming Messiah, was it before Jesus came onto the scene? Around 700 years plus, 700 to 750 years. Would you be willing to wait even if in your own lifetime something didn't happen? You knew the promises of God were true. You knew that they were complete. And you waited. And you waited. And you waited. But it didn't happen in your lifetime. Would you be content with that? I dare say that most of us in our culture would not be content with waiting and waiting and waiting and something never being fulfilled or happening in our lifetime. 
This is why the writer of Hebrews in chapter 11 says, 11 and 12 says, there are, there's this great cloud of witnesses. Do you know who those great cloud of witnesses were? The men and women of faith who remain faithful to the call of God upon their lives, even though the promises of God did not happen in their lifetime, but the future generations. Are you that generation who'd be willing to hand the baton to another? And so we come to this passage today that we learned about in Isaiah last week, but we're looking to today. And I'm going to tell you, isn't it interesting after you pray for something and wait for something so long that if it does happen in your lifetime, you're kind of in stunned disbelief, aren't you? Do you ever doubt the thing that happens when it actually happens? Like, oh, this can't really be happening. This can't really be the thing that I've been waiting on. And so even when it happens, we're sometimes in disbelief and like, yeah, whatever, it's not, it's, this can't be real. Somebody's playing a prank and you start to look behind doors and curtains to see who's videotaping you, right? So we come to Matthew, and we read Matthew's version of the birth narratives of Christ, and we're going to start in chapter 1, verse 18, and this is what it says. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. I don't like that word engaged. I should have used a different version today. Aptly translated is betrothed. Betrothed and engaged are not the same Betrothed is basically a marriage covenant agreement that is never to be broken and can only be broken through divorce. But there is no sexual activity during the betrothment. The closest thing we have in our society today is engagement, and that's why the translators of this version use engaged to make it at least somewhat applicable to our language. We'll get into that in just a minute. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin she, virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Hey, girls, go home and tell your mom and dad, I became pregnant by the Holy Spirit. I want you to look at the quandary that Mary would have been in, okay? An angel appears to her, angel Gabriel, who also appears to Matthew, excuse me, appears to Joseph. And he says, you have found, Luke's version says, you found favor with the Lord. O woman of favor. And you will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. Well, how will this happen? I'm only a virgin. Well, the power of the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And God Almighty will overshadow you. Now, in our day and age, you can do whatever you want with whomever you want, whenever you want, and nobody bats an eye. Totally different 2,000 years ago. In the Middle Eastern territory that we know as Judea and Galilee. And Mary actually would have been in fear of her own life for being pregnant out of wedlock because she would have been caught in what would have been considered sexual immorality which was condemnable by death. Who would believe her? And this is Matthew's version, so let's see what he says. Joseph, to whom she was engaged or betrothed, was a righteous man. What does it mean to be a righteous man or a righteous woman? What does righteous mean? Well, the first five letters of that word are a good indicator 
we have right versus wrong. Just for somebody to be righteous means that they are following the right ways of God. It's as simply as I can put it. It's a little more different than that in the uh, dictionaries of theology, but somebody who is righteous is somebody who has committed their lives to Christ or to God to do the things that God commands and expects. So Joseph now, he's a faithful man. He's a righteous man. He just doesn't go to church and clock his time at the local synagogue and do his religious duty. He actually lives out his faith on a daily basis. This is what it means that Joseph was a righteous man. And he did not want to disgrace Mary publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. Why would he do that? If he thought in any way she was unfaithful, which seems to be crossing his mind because he's wanting to dismiss her, why would he want to dismiss her if she'd done nothing wrong? Well, the pregnancy seems to indicate she'd done something. She was unfaithful. What was he to do? What would you do? What would you do, men, if the woman you were engaged to said, I've become pregnant by the Holy Spirit. What would you say? What would you do? See, I could tell you what I would probably do. Yeah, right. You became pregnant by who? Yeah, and I'm a Christian. I believe in God and the Holy Spirit. I believe in all of that. But for somebody to tell me the unbelievable or virtually the impossible would be difficult to get beyond. As he considered this, as he considered dismissing her privately, it says, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit and she will have a son and you're to name him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Now, I want you to hear this. This is why today's message is called The Fulfillment of Waiting. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message, message through his prophet. And who is this prophet again? This is Isaiah. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. I don't know what you may have eaten the night before to give you such a dream, but do you think he woke up saying, oh, that's a dismissive dream? No, because this is very specific. There is a real sense of the presence of God on him and in him. He is a righteous man in tune with God, and he has a sense of discernment that he knows when to perk up and listen. So it says, when Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary as his wife. I want you to think of the risk that, Mo, or that, that Joseph took in taking Mary as his wife, who was pregnant at the time. Why would he take Mary, knowing it could cost him his reputation? But he did not have sexual relations with her until her son was born, and Joseph named him Jesus. At just the right time in human history, 
God fulfilled his promise by sending the Messiah. God wasn't too early. He wasn't too late. He was completely on time. And we say, well, why did he come 2,000 years ago under Roman domination with a Roman emperor that was not really, I don't know, he didn't really like Christians. And nor did, for 300 years after that, any emperor really like Christians all that much. Why would God take a risk in becoming a baby in a time that seems full of fear of death? Do you know infant mortality rate during the time of Christ's birth was less than 50%. Babies didn't live long. There were no different types of medications and things to keep you safe in those days. And oftentimes, even in those days, women would not name their children until they were two or three years old because they would die very young. And do you catch what God says through the angel Gabriel that the child is to be named? He's given a name before he's even born. We do that today because our infant mortality rate is is nothing compared to what it was back then or what it is in some third world countries today. The waiting period during the betrothal is one thing we need to take into consideration. Again, why was there a waiting period? There was about anywhere from a nine-month to a 12-month waiting period during the betrothal. And here's one of the two reasons why. The first reason why there was a waiting period was because for the society and community in which they lived, which was a Jewish community, the Jewish betrothal ceremony was a covenant agreement in marriage without the sexual union because they wanted to make sure that the bride was pure. And they wanted to make sure that the husband, or soon-to-be husband, in the betrothal and her were not sleeping around. So what would happen within 9 to 12 months if there was any promiscuity during the betrothal? She could get pregnant, okay? That's one reason. The second reason is, and this is very biblical in the sense of it shows up in other circumstances, that the young man, after the bride price had been agreed on by his family and her family, and the bride price had been given... There was a sealing of the deal between the soon-to-be husband and the soon-to-be wife. There would be a common drinking of a cup of wine. The young man would hand the cup to the bride-to-be. If she took the cup and received it from him, it meant that she was agreeing to be married to him. If she rejected it, she still had the authority to say no. And the bride price could be called off, and they wouldn't get married. Did you know that? But if she received it, then that sealed the deal. She drank the cup, he drank the cup, and they were betrothed. And so the young man would not stick around during the betrothal. He was usually not present for those 9 to 12 months because he would then go back to his home where he had grown up and prepare a place for her. Does that sound familiar? John chapter 14, Jesus, before he is crucified and dead and buried in the tomb and before his resurrection, as he's sitting around the Last Supper, the Passover meal with his disciples, he says, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. 
Don't worry. I'll come back in due time to get you. Where I'm going, you cannot go now, but you know the way. Remember, this is I'm the way, the truth, and the life passage. So Jesus was using the similar imagery of the bridegroom and the bride between the two. When he says, I'm your bridegroom, you are my bride, I will come back and get you when I've prepared a place for you. And so the husband would go home. He would begin to build a home, a physical place to bring his bride back to. And after that 9 to 12 month time, he would go back to get her and there would be fanfare as this betrothed young man to this betrothed young lady as he was coming into town. The place has been prepared and there would be a marriage ceremony. And there would be celebration and shouts and this would be a week, up to two weeks long celebration in this marriage ceremony to where the marriage would be consummated and the two would become one flesh. And then after the ceremony, they would make the journey back to the place that he had prepared for her. There was a waiting period. They didn't do whatever their impulses desired of them to do. They were patient with each other. They were patient with the process that not only their culture, but God had put in place for purity and holiness and righteousness. They were patient to do the necessary things in order to maintain a sense of holiness. Not everybody in that day and age did that. That's why they had laws against those things. How long are you willing to wait in order to do the right thing? Second thing is Mary and Joseph's willingness to take the time to do the hard things is a very important thing we need to consider here. Um, she's told by an angel that she's going to bear a son. Now, I want to read that for you. It's in Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. It says in Luke's Gospel, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, well, who in the heck is Elizabeth? Those of you in the church might know who she is, but if you've not been in the church for that long, Elizabeth was a cousin of Mary or relative of Mary's. And she had a husband by the name of Zechariah. Zechariah was a priest in the temple in Jerusalem, and his duties of priesthood came up for that year. Well, Elizabeth and Zechariah were old in age. She was beyond childbearing years, and yet God had come to... Zechariah, while he was in the temple doing his priestly duties, and told him that Elizabeth was going to bear a child. And in his doubt and questioning of God, he was struck dumb. And what I mean by dumb isn't like, Burr. I mean, he was struck dumb in the sense of he couldn't speak. And now things have changed. When you read King James Version, it says he was struck dumb. It wasn't like a dumb stick where you kind of get the goofy look. It was, you cannot speak. And so he couldn't speak throughout the whole term of pregnancy until the child is born. And then he's able to speak again. So in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth to a village in Galilee to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. A couple things there. Who is Joseph a descendant of? 
David. And who did God promise would always remain on the throne? A descendant of David's. That is, I've said this before. That is the one unconditional covenant we have in the Old Testament. One unconditional. We have conditional covenants from God to people in the Old Testament. What's a conditional covenant? If you do this, then I'll do this. Okay, it's like signing a contract. And if there's a breach of contract by either party, it makes the contract null and void. If you have an unconditional contract, there is nothing that can breach that contract and make it null and void. And so God makes an unconditional covenant with David that no matter what happens, you will always have a descendant that will rise to the throne. Now imagine all the centuries that pass after David's death and all the kings that rise and fall and rise and fall and rise and fall to the point to where now you have God sending the kingdoms of Assyria and Babylon, uh, Babylonia to sack the northern and southern kingdoms of Jerusalem to where there is no more kingdom. Well, how is God going to fulfill his promise? Through David. If there's no kingdom to have a throne for. But then you have Jesus come onto the scene. At just the right time in human history. Through a man named Joseph who's a carpenter. Confused and disturbed after hearing this news from the angel, Mary tried to think what the angel could actually mean. And the angel says, don't be afraid, for I, you have found favor with God. Women, have you ever wondered what it means to be favored by God? What does it mean to be favored by God? Most of the women I've ever grown up with or known have a ball of insecurities to where they fight against this internal urge to hate themselves because they don't measure up to whatever our culture standards are or whatever their family standards were. There's this idea, this, this idea in, our, in our world today, at least in our world, that says, you must be like this, 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 and this to be accepted. But see, in God's kingdom and in God's economy, you're loved just as you are. But you're loved enough to not be left where you are. Because God created you and he put his image on you. You were an image bearer of the most high God of all creation who desires for you to know him intimately as he knows you intimately so that you can become the perfect identity you were created to be in Christ. And not the identity the world tells you you should be or some doctor tells you you should be or some psychologist or some weird person off the street. It is only in God that we can know our true identity. And so Mary is this favored woman of God. And I dare say every one of you are favored women of God if you just allow yourself to see you the way God does. And he says, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you'll name him Jesus, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Israel is, no long, is not a nation in, in Mary's day and age. Roman Empire is over the whole region. The Jews are allowed 
to do their religious worship and to do their own thing in the region, but they are not in authority and power. The Romans are. But do you hear what the angel Gabriel is telling here? And this is one of the cool things about God, is that no matter who is in authority, he is always in control. Some of you believe that. No matter who is in authority, he is always in control. Think of that in our day and age. No matter which political candidate gets in, God is ultimately in control. And you say, well, how can he be in control if he lets this person or that person in? Because I believe in a God that is mightier and more powerful than the systems and governments and structures of this world. And I believe God allows certain people to be in power, sometimes for good and sometimes for judgment. We don't like the judgment part. We only want to see the good part. But are we good enough to not receive God's judgment? Not always, or very rarely, or possibly even never. Jesus was confronted by a religious leader who came to him one time and said, was trying to, he's going to trap him, but he says, he's buttering it. You know when you come to somebody and you know you have something, you're going to stick to them, but you're being sly about it, and you're like, hey, what's up? You're pretty awesome, aren't you? Well, you're not! You, know, you cut them off. So this religious leader comes to Jesus and says, hey, good teacher. And Jesus cuts him off, and he says, why do you call me good? There's no one good but the Father. Which means that puts every one of us on the same playing field. None of us are good and can have no claim to goodness. The only goodness that we can ever have is through Christ Jesus, who is the perfect epitome of goodness. And this is why with the fruit of the Spirit, the evidence therein lies in the one who is in Christ. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You can only produce those things if the Holy Spirit is in you through the power and belief and faith of Jesus Christ. Mary and Joseph's willingness to take time to do the hard things was important. He took her as his wife. They were willing to stand out like a sore thumb within society in these small communities that everybody knew their name and everybody knew their business. And they were willing to risk reputation and even life for the purposes of God because they believed in him above all else. Their reputation on this earth wasn't as important as their reputation to the Most High God. How they were perceived by the rest of the world wasn't as important as how they were perceived by God. And so the two of them walked this road with, I'm sure, a sense of trepidation, but with faith, moving in the direction of God to bring this small child into the world that is not Joseph's bloodline, but is truly God. And God's fulfillment of the promise of the long way to Messiah would come at just the right time in human history. Never too early 
and definitely never late. In Luke's gospel in chapter 2, it says, The time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger. And we get this beautiful sanitized version of a stable and a feeding trough where there's no poo-poo and no animal slobber. No, and you think I'm being crass. The God of all creation ordained it this way. You cannot sanitize the manger scene. You see, I think God came in that way to show us the very nature of who he is. That he is a God that's willing to take risks on us. We are worth taking risks for. He's a God who, through 30 years of time, would bear the brunt of the world's anger, hatred, sin, as he hung on the cross. He took a risk as he's walking this road to Golgotha, which we'll study about here in a few months. Being spat upon, mocked, and jeered along this mile-long journey to this place outside of the walls of Jerusalem in that day. To a place called the Skull, or Golgotha. We call it Calvary today because it means so much more. And as he walked that hill and laid with his arms outstretched to be nailed to these wooden beams, he was a God who was willing to do what no one would have done. He took a risk on us, being denied and rejected all the way. And he had the wherewithal while hanging on the cross to say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But yet we get peeved over the slightest injustices. <laughs> and here is a man who did no wrong, was perfect in every way, and took every one of our injustices upon himself. A small baby given to Mary and Joseph who would be laid in a feeding trough in a bored-out cave hearing livestock all around because of the census that was taken and everybody had to travel back to their hometowns. There was no room for them. The only place they could lodge for the evening was out in the, out in the barn. How many actually realized that very night when that happened that God, the long-awaited Messiah that had been proclaimed by prophets and seers centuries before, every time that somebody spoke, they had awaited this coming Messiah who would set the captives free just like Moses set the Israelites free through God's power crossing the Red Sea to get away from Pharaoh and his army. We await the fulfillment of a promise too. 
And I said this last week, Jesus is coming again. We are foretold that in Scripture in the New Testament. He will return. But there's only one person who knows when that time is, God the Father in heaven. Jesus said he doesn't even know. He's awaiting the command to be sent. And you can, you can devise calendars, writings, you could see signs, wonders, and different things in the world around you, but I'm promising you there is no one who knows the day or the hour. Not one. Read as many books as you want to on it. Get all these speculative narratives from all different sources. Watch all the documentaries you want to on this. They're never going to be able to tell you the moment when Christ is returning. And for 2,000 years, we've waited. You know, the first disciples thought it was going to happen in their lifetime. If you read the book of Acts and some of Paul's letters, some of them are beginning to die. And they're becoming somewhat disillusioned by the fact Jesus hasn't come back yet. And that was in the first century, just a few decades after Jesus had risen and ascended to heaven. And every generation since then has wondered, is it going to be in our lifetime? Is it going to be in our lifetime? Oh, look at the signs and the wonders. I promise you there have been signs and wonders for every generation. I know that Jesus in the gospel said, you need to be ready. How many of you are ready? Am I ready? Am I truly ready? I mean, for 2,000 years we've waited. He's going to come again. He'll receive his own. There will be a final judgment. And then there will be no more sin, death, sorrow, sadness, pain, tears, suffering, anything evil. It'll all be wiped out of existence. And only the goodness of God and his kingdom which is heaven, will be the reality of the new heaven and the new earth, which he will reign over completely. Will we, will we believe it when he comes? <laughs> Honestly, it'll be too late if you don't. Because when that final trumpet sounds, there's not a place on earth where anyone can hide. There's not a place on earth that will not. I've had people say, will I know when he comes back again? Yeah. Oh, there'll be no question. His arrival will be with a fanfare of heaven that the world has never seen. These so-called false messiahs of Jesus has come and he's now this person doing this thing in this location and he's gathering a following. Jesus said there will be false prophets to come in my name. Don't believe them. When he returns, it'll be unquestionable. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. As our worship team comes forward to close this out, that's a question I have for you is in John's chapter, uh, John's gospel, chapter 1, which we'll explore a little bit more in depth later. John tells us that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was 
with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. It's the first and second verse of chapter 1 of the Gospel of John. Later on down, I think it's about verse 14, he says, the Word, capital W, meaning Christ, the embodiment of the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. And it goes on to say that he came to his own, his own were the Jewish people who had been his representatives all the way since Abraham. He came to them, but guess what? They wouldn't receive him. They prophesied about him for centuries, but they rejected him. Do you reject him? See, the mission had opened to not just the Jews, but the Gentiles, and we are a part of that Gentile clan. <laughs> the grace has been opened. Jesus' battle-scarred hands and feet are willing to embrace anyone who comes to him willingly and in full surrender. When will he come back? I don't know. I wish I knew. And then some ways I wish, I, I'm glad I don't. Because it forces me to be on the lookout, looking on the horizon for that day, knowing that it can be any moment. I'd love to be preaching when that happens. That would be a great climax of a message, wouldn't it? And here he is! The long-awaited Messiah. No, I would fall flat on my face. I don't know what I would do, you know? I don't know if that's your story today. I don't know what your story is. If you've come into this place, you're watching at home, or you're listening to this while you're driving, it's okay, don't wreck your car. Yeah, that's true. But more importantly, be ready. The people of Jesus' day and age, some of them were ready, but most were not. I would hate to be those when Jesus comes again and not be the ones to be ready because we think we have all the time in the world to make the right decisions and to do the right things. We're just, we're going to ride this out as long as we can and then at the last moment we'll figure it out. We aren't given the promise of a next moment. You're only given the promise of the very present in which you live. What are you doing with it? Our altars are always open. You come to my right over here, your left. Someone will pray with you. If you are really seeking and learn, wanting to know more, and you're like, I'm, I'm done waiting. I'm done waiting on my life to work out the way I planned for it. I want to I wanna work toward living for Christ and then waiting upon him so that my strength can be renewed. If you want to come to my left, your right, nobody's going to bother you over there. You can pray alone, make amends with God, lay everything that you need to at that altar, figuratively speaking. But don't leave without having made some sense of either recommitment, commitment, or having just said, God, I'm with you. Heavenly Father, you are good and holy and righteous. You are worthy of all praise. And God, you are perfect in every way. Every way we wish to be and the only way we can be is through your son Jesus. 
we can be perfect as you are perfect, Heavenly Father, by receiving your Son, Jesus, into our lives and beginning to walk in his ways, in his footsteps, surrendering our desires, wills, wants, ways, identities to you so that we can be perfected into the person you created us to truly be. Forgive us where we faltered, failed, stumbled. Help us to get up and move in your direction with faith and obedience, knowing that you are trustworthy and good. Forgive us of our sins. Heal us in this place today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.